Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Blue Lineage Podcast. On today's episode, we'll uh, finish off the 1960s. Um, That'll include talking about uh, funk a little bit more and kind of wrapping that up. And we also get a little bit into our first uh, rap or hip-hop influences. And to start off, I'm just going to briefly talk about the terminology there in 1964, wrap up that year. It's been a a long year on the timeline with a couple entrances, uh, a couple of entries, is what I meant to say. Um, So the terminology is the British invasion, and I feel like I've referred to it forever on this, uh, on these episodes, you know, starting probably with uh, R&B, I would imagine, or maybe even blues, actually, I guess is probably when I first brought it up. So I've been talking about it forever, so now it's finally here, and it's really a very brief definition because of all of that. Um, I feel like I've already touched on it enough, but the British invasion is just it refers to uh, the influence and the arrival of all the uh, British performers and other performers that may have originated elsewhere in Europe, but primarily people are referring to British performers and their influence on the U.S. pop music scene, and that really was brought upon by the Beatles in 1964 as, you know, they almost single-handedly really kind of revolutionized that whole scene, but it included a lot of other bands like the Rolling Stones, uh, the the Animals, the Kinks, um, as well as some of the people that the performers or individuals that we might think of later, especially from uh, bands like the Yardbirds, you know, there was Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, uh, who else was in there, Um, and and also a band like The Who was another one, you kind of get like these phases of really guys we associate and women we associate with blues rock and musicians that we more so associate with um, as sort of just this rock, you know, kind of takeover pop, pop icons and whatnot. Um, so that's really that. I don't really feel I need to go into it since I've kind of mentioned it so many times. It's a pretty basic concept and the influence on the timeline is pretty clear as we talked about this, how this uh, invasion, quote unquote, um, really just changed the landscape for a lot of these rock and roll and rock stars who were already present in the U.S., um, uh, uh, specifically the black uh, rock and roll uh, musicians who were still kind of remaining from that rock and roll era and how that kind of, even though that these uh, musicians coming in into the U.S. were uh, influenced by them. It kind of shifted the market, but, you know, it seemed like that market was already shifting anyways, but that certainly uh, changed it and kind of final, kind of closed that chapter. But um, interestingly enough, though, the first uh, artist that we'll talk about on this timeline really... um, made his name in the UK, but he is from the US. And the first entry on the timeline is because he uh, joined up with Lil Richard's band around 1964 for about a year. He joined the band Upsetters, which I briefly spoke about when I talked about Lil Richard, um, just because it was uh, sort of important, that time period was sort of important to the development of funk music and of course, you know, that also had an influence on Jimi Hendrix and his inclusion of sort of that funk sound and the development of that throughout his uh, brief um, music career. And so that is the first individual on the timeline, Jimi Hendrix. And he's an interesting one because uh, I, I'm not sure you necessarily give him credit for originating any of these genres per se. Um, he definitely has his own style completely, but it's he's an interesting person because he just kind of pops up here and there 
along the timeline, you know, with Little Richard, um, and just kind of the way he fused all this together, and uh, of course he pops up again with a British invasion as he kind of not at not with the initial wave, but later he kind of makes his name in the UK and continues to move in a way of popularity during that sort of uh, rock, you know, psychedelic-ish uh, uh, movement that kind of went on with this freedom movement, kind of got swept up in that in, in 19, 1967. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but to start off, you know, Jimi Hendrix, um, originally known as James Marshall Hendrix, um, was known for a lot of innovations on electric guitar, you know, namely the, the sound effects, you know, just that rock electric sound that was unique to him. Uh, you know, he also was at very innovative in just the genre itself, coming up through the blues, R&B, rock, funk, um, just his songwriting. And of course, his showmanship was a huge component of that as well, which I think some people might know him the most for is that showmanship especially during that era. And I think now that time has passed, people give additional credit to him for some of these other innovations like songwriting um, that maybe were more overlooked just because people were just trying to digest the sound that was com the sound and show that was coming from, emanating from him and his band at the time. Um, and as a child, he was known for his creativity um, an interest in science fiction and visual art. Um, apparently, he's, he you know, had success, as much success as I guess you can have as a child in school, um, with some of the art that he made. Uh, it was very clear, like, uh, he was interested in science fiction, read a lot of science fiction books, and it definitely comes out as music, so that's why it is included or added uh, in this little bio here, just because it did certainly come out and sort of sort of uh, one of the reasons his music was characterized besides the cultural movement but one of the reasons his music was kind of characterized as psychedelic because it didn't really fit other categories as far as the sound and the lyrics that I was writing about it was kind of you know very fantasy very dreamy uh, and very scientific science fiction-esque sci-fi-esque um, with some of the themes that were going on there uh, his mother uh, passed away at a young age, and he had a pretty unstable upbringing. Um, his brothers and his siblings, other siblings, were in and out of foster care. Um, I don't believe that Jimmy spent very much time in foster care, but most of his siblings uh, you know, were shuffled around quite a bit. Um, his first guitar that he got was a cigar box. Uh, I think we've brought up cigar box type guitars or different, you know, sort of handmade guitars um, where you kind of string strings across the st cigar box and make a neck out of something and you have your kind of a guitar, of, you know, guitar-like uh, instrument. Um, and then he got a ukulele, and finally he got a acoustic guitar, I believe with the help of his father, worked with his father um, on occasion. And one of the things that I think is pretty well known about him is he was a left-handed player, and he would then, then restring the guitar. He would restring right-handed guitar, so the strings were in the right order when he was playing them left-handed. And... He ended up doing that for his entire career, which is interesting. I mean, his career was pretty brief, but at that point, um, I would think that there were left-handed guitars out, you know, if, and certainly at his height of his career, he could have certainly had them made at the very least. Um, I'm trying to think of other left-handed guitars um, during that time period, but you know, I, one way or another, it, it could have happened, but that kind of became a part of his signature style and, and sound, um, just because of, you know, especially, especially considering that he played a 
um, the Fender Stratocaster and all those Fender guitars of course had like those inline uh, neck um, headstock uh, setup so you know it, you can argue that may have impacted the sound a little bit more than if it was a different type of guitar like a Gibson or something like that um, you know I think it's a little bit debatable but I you know if you look into it there are different theories about how that may have impacted the sound here and there um, he was definitely interested in the blues early on blues artists like Elmore James and John Lee Hooker and in the 1950s he began playing in local bands in Seattle which is where he grew up in the Seattle area and he dropped out of high school and joined the army and the story goes as he did this to avoid um, jail time because he got caught with some other people riding in a stolen car so that's the story that you know he was able to choose the army to avoid jail time um, and so he was in the army he was part of the 101st airborne and he was there for about a year uh, maybe almost two it kind of varies uh, the stories I'm not I'm not I have never been able to confirm exactly when that was or what it was the length of time um, and after that he ended up playing uh, in Nashville with uh, a bassist he had met uh, in the army named Billy Cox who we'll hear again about later on and the band was called King Casuals and they played at other venues um, and you know and what, what we talked about earlier back in the timeline which was referred to as the Shetland Circuit at the time, also known as the Urban Theater Circuit, and he backed a bunch of notable R&B acts during that time. And later he moved uh, with the band to Harlem. And in 1964, where we come into our timeline, is when he had a brief stint with Little Richard and the Upsetters. And also around this time, he met, he reportedly met Albert King. And I know that Albert King at times refers to have having met Jimi Hendrix, but I don't know what the time frame was, but apparently it was around this time. And he helped him re refine his note bending techniques, which is interesting because I think, you know, Jimi Hendrix is certainly a very prolific note bender, uh, guitar string bender. And I think, you know, I don't know who is considered to be the best, but Al Albert King is definitely one of those people who really maximized string bending techniques uh, when you listen to his songs uh, you know really bending in and out of uh, notes um, and it's interesting because you look at him and then you look at sort of that lineage with uh, you know if Jimi Hendrix kind of followed in then you think of another prolific string bender like Stevie Ray Vaughan you know also kind of working with Albert King for a significant amount of time. Um, it seems like a lot of those type of players kind of uh, had an interest in Albert King, you know, because Albert King is certainly not the original string bender, but he, you know, when you listen to his music, he's definitely, you know, one of the, a very, in, had a very unique and interesting string bending, set of string bending techniques, and it's very present in his songs maybe more than others um, where I think you can say that other musicians used it to accent their songs um, Albert King really almost used it to define his sort of electric blues that he played um, and then so in 1965 he began playing with the Isley Brothers and in 1966 he returned to New York you know, he toured with the Isley Brothers for a little bit, and then he returned to New York to lead a band um, he formed called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which he started to play in uh, the Greenwich Village Clubs, which kind of became his, that whole area of New York kind of became kind of his base from that point on, um, his U.S. base, I'd say, like, because he traveled uh, out of the country and became well known in other countries. So, 
this this early style this type this time uh when he kind of was able to start to play really play his own uh music and not so much covers of other artists you could really see the influence of uh guitar greats like muddy waters t-bone walker albert king as we just mentioned uh, chuck berry and kind of uh infusing this and also you know just expanding and experimenting and showing like a really an inspiration from a really wide range of musicians and he was discovered by a producer and manager Chaz Chandler who got him to move to England in 1966 um, and he formed the Jimi Hendrix experience at that time and they got their first hit with their version of Hey Joe in 1967 which was part of their you know really groundbreaking album Are You Experienced and that same year is when they came you know they were based in the UK originally as we just said and they played the Monterey International Pop Music Festival back in the States uh, which you know was really a it was really a showcase for them in the U.S. and it also really fit perfectly with the sort of counter countercultural social movements that were kind of rising up and taking place at the time. These sort of freedom and you know anti-war, um, you know really the peace and love sort of themes that were rising up at the time and kind of piggybacking off some of the earlier uh, black um, social movements that had taken place in the U.S. and and it was really this time where you know he really got into and that showcase really showed off his unique uh, showmanship and his use of effects and feedback and distortion and improvisational skills that really you know set him apart from other musicians and sounds of the time and in 1968 they released uh, an even more innovative uh, album called Axis Bold as Love and that was followed by Electric Ladyland and so Axis Bold as Love as Love you can really see that that really seems to be an album that you know he was able to put his own uh, fingerprint on you know even more so than the first one and continue to delve deeper into some of the effects you know cutting edge effects of the time that were coming out and and then with Electric Ladyland, you kind of see that he's kind of arrived, kind of probably experimented in that fashion as much as he could, at least for that time, because you have to remember that effects and feedback at this time are new in general. So there is only so much you could do, uh, you know, even with you know, his success, you know, his engineers and sound uh, people could only, you know, customize and rig everything up and get so much. And of course, he was touring a lot. So you can only get so far as far as that goes. So by the time when Electric Ladyland comes out, it really is showing that he's kind of found his sound or sounds and now is really interested in experimenting with other ty styles of music as well as other musicians as they, he brought in a lot of um, guest musicians or was seemingly, and of course Electric Ladyland also refers to the studio um, he built and you know it was another intention to you know have you know this was kind of a home base where he could potentially facilitate some of these you know collaboration moments or sounds with a studio a state-of-the-art studio and so in 1969 shortly after uh, the band broke up you know with and it's kind of reflected you know, Jimi Hendrix's continued ambition to expand the sound, and he briefly formed a band that was known as uh, Gypsy Sons and Rainbows, which included Billy Cox, and that was for the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. And then in 1969, he also recorded a track, it's called Doriella Dufontaine, with Lightning Rod, also known as Jalal Mansur Nouradine, of The Last Poets, and we'll talk about that a little bit more um, later, because we'll talk about The Last Poets um, in a little bit. But that track was really um, 
interesting because it was an example of early rap. You know, Lightning Rod was you know, a, prefer- a prolific spoken word artist at that time. And of course, spoken word has, you know, that, you know, rap essentially is very much stems from poetry in general. But, you know, spoken word and the styling of the last poets to be utilizing spoken word along with, um, you know, background music and instrumentals, you know, that kind of has that early, um, early rap, hip hop culture, you know, influence or that's it has the early uh, um, what am I looking for the early it has some of the same features early features and resembles um, early hip hop to an extent even though you know hip hop culture kind of comes from a, a slightly different place but similar and um, then you could hear also Jimi Hendrix with his funk influences in the in the track as well because he did the instrumental on guitar and bass and so you see like additional versatility and also a new wrinkle where you know Jimi Hendrix's career may have headed if he had been able to continue playing longer Um, you know we've kind of seen him get involved in all the genres up to this point and now he was kind of meshing in this what was evolving into hip-hop and funk and you can also see you know Hendrix uh, ha- had many uh, collaboration with those mus- those musicians who are in that side of soul funk area, like Sly Stone was a major one, and a lot of his late recordings were heavily funk influenced. You could hear it there. And you know, one interesting thing is I think a lot of people would wonder, you know, well, I wonder at least what would have happened to Jimi Hendrix sort of perception if he would have been around when uh, like Soul Train came out, the show. Um, um, Just because it showcased so many black musicians who were kind of representative of the, you know, sort of black over and below black music genres. And Jimi Hendrix is of course most often put in the rock genre and doesn't really you know, isn't necessarily associated with black music, um, even though, you know, he collaborated with those musicians and, you know, his early uh, beginnings were very much in like this R&B, you know, very steeped in the blues and ended up, you know, kind of going over to Europe and really getting uh, put into this blues rock, you know, sort of British invasion almost sound. Um and he certainly did um, go that way more than other black artists, well-known black artists, but it's also just interesting because the whole time he definitely integrated all of that sound into his sound. He always played blues numbers. He always have a you know, blues number in his concerts or his albums. And so it was all there. It just kind of was in addition. But you know, as I've talked about a little bit before, you know, with the radio, uh, it was very hard to for artists to kind of be multi-genre, um, to to be part of more than one genre, just because radio stations really played. Unless you were just known as a pop artist, you know, a pop artist really have to kind of oblige this sort of commercial sound, the hot sounds of the time. But within that, you are able to kind of move around a little bit more than if you're you know, specifically put into an R&B category or some of these other specific genre categories versus, you know, or the rock category, um, you are able to be a little bit more. But if you listen to someone like uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, he's, his mu- music was pretty heavy. You know, it sounded like rock, generally speaking, and le- especially, you know, the songs that the radio is going to play is going to be singles, and most of the singles off of uh, his albums that were played were usually more rock oriented, not necessarily the blues numbers or some of these other numbers that were on his on his albums that may have appealed to different audiences. Uh, it was definitely you know marketed towards one um, station or type of station. 
And so it's, it's you know, it's, it was difficult at the time to really umbrella and branch out where now I think, you know, if you think about modern like streaming options or just the ability to access different music by an artist, not just the single that would have been put out or would have been known by most because it was put out on the radio, uh, you know, you at least have a, an ability to really, um, s if the artist plays different types of music or s different genre genres, even with one album, you can kind of see that or it would, or maybe that, that song would even be referred to you or recommended to you. Um, it's not, it's no longer that the whole album fits in a genre, you know, the way things are categorized and organized, you know, it's almost by individual track. So if a artist plays a little bit of jazz and R&B, that track will you know, be labeled R&B or rock or jazz, not necessarily the whole album as it was before. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it would have been interesting to see, I think, if he would have been around longer, number one, to see based on just who he's collaborating with, if that would have put him in a different light or also if, you know, he would have been featured on a show like Soul Train and kind of, you know, if that would have changed uh, the way the black community kind of perceived him. But, you know, regardless, uh, you know, really important to this timeline and black American music in general. Um, so after uh, Woodstock, the band that we talked about was eventually ref refined into the Band of Gypsies, which was basically the same um, band except it was a trio with uh, Billy Cox and Buddy Miles on drums. And, you know, they released a, one album, a self-titled album in 1970. And Billy Cox would remain, remain, would remain his primary bassist for the remainder of his career, but the Band of Gypsies themselves broke up shortly after for, you know, different reasons, reported reasons. Um, and following this, this period, um, he was spending a lot of time in his new studio, as we talked about, Electric Ladyland. And around then, you know, his career was cut short by his death later in 1970. So, you know, very brief career um, when you consider his, his rise, um, you know, really getting into s his own sound in 1966, as we talked about when he went to return to New York. And then, you know, passing away in you know, late 1970. It's a very short amount of time. So, you know, very prolific career considering the span of time and the amount that he was able to kind of put out and get done that amount of time. So one of those people that, you know, you just always uh, really wonder, I think, you know, on this timeline of the people we've talked about, um, a lot of them have, you know, died younger. I think, you know, the main, the other person that really stands out is Robert Johnson. Um, you know, as far as someone who really died at a point where people were just starting to get to know them and s recognize them for some of these skills. Most of the other people on this timeline may have died younger, you know, or young, all things considered. But generally speaking, you know, as far as their career um, in the spotlight or peaking, I guess you could say, as far as, you know, industry's view or even maybe their own view, uh, you know, we don't, we haven't really seen that that often. Um, you know, that's, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Robert Johnson, very, very sh short careers. Um, but, in, but, you know, some of the most impactful musicians on the timeline, arguably, uh, in a lot of ways. Jimi Hendrix, maybe more so for, for the potential and some of his contributions to the future of multiple genres, but but Robert Johnson certainly a very core individual um, in the development of the blues and future genres as well. So interesting how that kind of works out, you know, unfortunate as well. Um, but that is uh, Jimi Hendrix, and next on the timeline are The Last Poets, and Last Poets are an interesting group because I think that you know, they are a group that is 
kind of look overlooked in a lot of ways. I know that a lot of early rappers um, are people who they give credit to the last poets, or you can hear them give credit to the last poets, but they're not necessarily, you know, probably because they are spoken word. You know, they didn't necessarily break out into a music scene. You know, the spoken word kind of poetry scene, um, you know, sort of uh, socially conscious uh, poetry slash spoken word is you know, kind of a different audience uh, than what would have been the the early hip hop scene, you know, which is really kind of a you know, it was kind of a community party scene, which would have included, there's crossover there, but, you know, this is definitely a, a little bit of a different scene, although really in the same location, kind of coming from the same thing in a lot of ways. But the last poets, you know, they were known as often, cons sometimes considered the first rap group, but, you know, it's really how you define it. You know, I don't think people necessarily are going to say, like, they are the first rappers associate and connect them with the early connect and compare them with the early hip hop artists or rappers because they definitely are it's definitely a big difference but if you want to define it you know just basically what rap is you know by de definition and you know what they were kind of doing you could but what's most importantly is they just have that you know spoken word plus the background uh, music instrumentals that we talked about which was uh um and also their actual lyrics, if you listen to some of their early lyrics and tracks, they were used by some of the early hip hop artists. So you, know, you could make the argument there that because they were able to be used or utilized in hip hop, then they are hip hop. I don't know. You know it's not a debate that I uh, would really wanna get involved in. I'm just interested in their innovation and influence on the timeline. Um, and they really grew out of the black arts movement. Um, and that was a socially and politically aware art and literature movement of the 1960s. And they first performed in uh, Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, New York. Uh, it was for a gathering in honor of Malcolm X in 1968. And at that time, they were pretty informal, but they performed there, and soon after, they split up, and they split into two groups that was known as the Original Last Poets, which is a separate group that we don't really get into, and the core group continued as the Last Poets. And it's not necessarily that they were rivals, but you know, they just, they just kind of went separate directions directions and I don't know of a situation where they ever really collaborated I think I don't remember the details but I think there were just different intentions and leanings and even the last poets are kind of uh, the last poets we talk about are um, a somewhat changing you know they shift change members a little bit but the last poets that we are covering in this episode are Abiyadun Oyewale, Suleiman El-Hadi, and Jalal Mansur Nuruddin, who we mentioned a little bit, and Umar Bin Hassan, and Raymond Nalia, Nalia, sorry, Nalihia. I spelled his name wrong in my notes, I just realized. And Raymond and Elijah Hurry. Uh, the group joined a number of activist parties, including the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they also joined students, uh, students for a Democratic Society and the Black Panther Party. Um, they ended up splitting up into separate group in the early 1970s. And that's why I was saying that 
that they uh, continued to, these groups kind of continue to splinter and um, perform. When you look at their albums, you'll see different members on different tracks and different, um, for different albums. Um, and a lot of them had, you know, the kind of their own thing going on. So they're, they're always kind of an informal group, but the last poets that we're referring to, the main split is the original Last Poets and the Last Poets. Um, and they were basically just known for spoken word over percussion. That was, you know, and socially conscious lyrics. Uh, they were really infused with content about racial oppression and social justice. And they were signed by producer Alan Douglas, and they released their debut album, The Last Poets, in... 1970 and in 1971 this is madness which included uh, jazz and funk inspired backing instrumentals which was their next um, album and you know so they kind of continued to build towards this hip-hop sound um, you know and you have to remember that the formal Hip hop formally did not exist until until 1979, roughly, um, as far as you know, commercial um, releases and hits. You know, 1979 was the year. Um, prior to that, you know, you could argue that there were tracks out there, um, and of course, you know, this is an example of some of the early. Um, those early sounds. Um, and so in 1973, um, Jalal Nur Dean, he, he released an album called The Hustlers Convention, which really, you know, reflected the future sounds of rap. But the problem with that was that the album, you know, for a variety of reasons, it got limited exposure and you know, some of the early appreciators and innovators within, you know, the music and future rap artists, you know, they had heard about it and it was also played at some early block parties, but overall, you know, Hustlers Convention was really unknown uh, to the greater public for, you know, quite, quite a long time. Um, and the band itself, as I said, you know, they didn't really get their due or didn't get as much attention uh, for their contributions as one of the the early influencers or innovators. But in the 1980s, they got a little bit of a surge in popularity because, you know, hip-hop culture really began to er to uh, emerge and a lot of artists were sampling their work or you know, kind of pay paying a little bit of homage to them. And they continued to make uh, performances and tour into the 1990s and 2000s. But... You know, I think they're just important in general, but one of the the artists or entries on this timeline that definitely doesn't get as much credit, but really, you know, once you listen to them and you can listen to some of the the uh, early artists in the genre and you can clearly see that they were an influence, uh, kind of like Chuck Berry in some ways, but Chuck Berry definitely had his hits. It's just that some of his non-hits were th probably the most in influential songs. And in this case, you know, I think the last poets were probably very well known and popular in the community. Um, similar to some of these other artists, it seemed like maybe they sacrificed some of the potential commercial success for, you know, social causes, you know, aligning themselves with groups that were not necessarily popular on, you know, all avenues, um, taking issue with some of the black issues facing the community so, you know, they kind of sacrifice that to a certain extent. However, I think for a spoken word group, you know, they still are probably one of the better known historically uh, because of that connection and contribution to, to hip hop. So it's kind of a, you know, kind of look at both ways uh, as far as, you know, how much credit they got relatively to, uh, you know, what, what they should have got, I guess. I don't, you know, I don't know. But that's the last poets. Um, you know, interesting, if you want to take a deep dive, there's a lot of different um, aspects, you know, as far as their contribu contributions politically and socially, as well as their actual music and some of their individual clear careers. If you haven't heard the 
Hustlers convention. I would definitely check it out. Um, I know it's on the timeline, so it should be on the website at some point. You know, it's actually something that is not the easiest to get the full version of. You know, it's a whole album. So I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. But um, one way or another, you should definitely check out Hustlers Convention if you haven't, as well as some of their early works, because they're you can see the clearly see the connection to hip hop. And so last on the timeline, um, interestingly enough, is the meters who we've already talked about funk a good amount and they are really, you know, one of the originators of funk, so it's interesting that we're kind of talking about them later on, but it's just kinda how the timeline works out. Um, a lot of these other individuals on the timeline kind of start a little bit before and keep going past but in the case of the meters you know their their highlight really was in this time period where funk was just getting developed and then you know kind of broke apart a little bit early on we'll talk about that in a second but you know they were known as the originators of the funk one of the key originators um, I already talked about James Brown band we talked about the upsetters of the upsetters of uh, little, little Richard his band and kind of a, you know there's other key components to that but when you think about all of those bands that's kind of kind of kind of forms the core um, when you think about the original sounds of funk and the band was led by Art Neville, um, the Neville the Neville brothers, uh, who come from New Orleans music scene. Uh, that includes Art's brother Aaron. They were formerly named the Neville brothers, and they were known as Alan Toussaint's uh, studio band, uh, crafting their rhythmic sound at that time. And Alan Toussaint is, uh, n- of course, another big uh, New Orleans known in the New Orleans music scene, and he was influenced by the well-known New Orleans player, Professor Longhair, who had been really influenced by champion Jacques Dupree, who we talked about a, a, quite a while back. Champion Jacques Dupree uh, had his his song Junker Blues that was eventually renamed as Fat Man and you know, Fat uh, Fast Domino. That was his original hit. And you know who's also a New Orleans guy, so you know it kind of all stems back to Champion Jack Dupree to some degree. Um, you know, I think that was one of the things about Champion Jack Dupree was not really well known, but his footprint is pretty wide. Um, a lot of it was because he decided to go to Europe, and and most of his career was spent there. And he's kind of you know guy who laid a little bit low as far as. Uh, industry but uh, just to kind of highlight that little uh, bit of lineage right there um, and how we get to the meters and Neville brothers and you know the key with the, the Neville brothers and the meters is they always had kind of this focus on rhythm uh, it went ever since they started playing together uh, going back to high school uh, they were known as the Hackets. They recorded uh, Mardi Gras Mambo, which was, you know, kind of gained a following in the R&B community. And then in 1969, Art Neville formed the Meters, and and they they uh, had a focus sound focus that was uh, shaped and resembled uh, like a sly stone. And together they put hits together like the Sissy Strut, uh, Look Up Pie Pie, and Chicken Strut, which were all instrumentals. And they continued to support Toussaint's uh, productions during, uh, you know, working on many of his albums and many of the 
albums he produced, like Dr. John, Lee Dorsey, Robert Palmer, and Patti LaBelle, including her 1975 hit, uh, Lady Marmalade. And they split up in 1977 after they had a disagree with Tucson and and the Neville brothers. They continued to perform together, um, together and solo, and they collaborated with, with a bunch of numerous musicians because, of course, they're more known for their instrumental, so you saw a lot of different collaborations, you know, to sometimes with vocalists and other musicians to just, you know, put together, you know, more complete, I guess you could say, uh, performances and songs or iterations of songs. And then in 1989, the band reformed and continued to perform with various uh, band iterations into the 2000s, and they still uh, still see them tour today. And so that's the meters, you know, important funk, especially that New Orleans uh, scene funk, um, always have their own thing going on there. Um, they always kind of come back to in the timeline to check in on you know, where New Orleans is as far as the development of music and contribution to the west rest of this uh, whole music timeline. And now that's really it, you know, pretty um, straightforward today, uh, just kind of wrapping up the 90s, you know, I think some brief careers kind of shaped things out a little bit with Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, career being brief, the meters were kind of off and on and brief career and more well known as a studio, you know, band than a real touring act that kind of had major hits uh, outside of the few that I named. And the last poets, you know, kind of uh, unknown, you know, signed, only had a couple uh, major released albums and had some solo albums, you know, some of the individual members. And, you know, still all these artists are very important, but as far as their their uh, popularity and their success, commercial success, pretty limited, some because of, you know, career length and others because of just the situation and how they, how it kind of worked out for them. But all important, um, I think the British invasion and kind of, you know, just keep in mind that all of this is going on at this time. So some of the artists that we talked on, talked about earlier are still, uh, you know, the dominant artists um, in this time period as well as some of the artists, well, really, mostly Jimi Hendrix as far as artists of this period. But, you know, of course, there's still James Brown and Stevie Wonder and some of these other artists who are really picking up and dominating as well as some of the artists, many artists that are not on this timeline and the artists who came over from Europe who we've mentioned here and there. So, you know, it's an interesting time period and you have to think that to some degree this sort of swell of you know, the British invasion impacted the ability for some of these other artists like the Last Poets or the Meters, you know, to really break break into a, into the music scene in the U.S. Not that they would have, because as we've said, they have a, you know, an innovative, unique sound that would, may not have been, you know, the sound that people wanted to hear at the time. Um, you know, it's hard to say, but, I, you know, you can factor that in a little bit for sure. Um, so anyways, you know, at this time also there's Motown and of course the soul music is that is also going on to, to kind of pair with this rock movement. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, um, next episode kind of have kind of wrapped up funk in a lot of ways. It still has had its fingerprint on soul and R&B from this point on, but as far as the core artists who kind of move on from that a bit and we start to get shift a little bit more into this hip-hop era the the last poets kind of kick it off and now we are sort of shifting and i guess Jimi hendrix kind of helped kick it off a little bit too and we'll slowly transition into that final genre on the timeline and you know i think it gets pretty interesting and one of the things i brought up uh, i think last episode was just sort of how this timeline has shifted um where in the beginning black american music kind of had to find a way to fit into the industry and now really we see that these artists and performers are defining the industry even if it's not necessarily a pop hit there's a market now where you know a lot of these artists are able to really innovate and you know uh, contribute their own flavor and have their uh, clear um 
you know, market, even if it's not the mainstream, to, you know, uh, put out what they want and not necessarily, you know, feel like they have to fit into, like, this sort of R&B or rock and roll kind of, um, it's kind of a rock and roll or R&B mold, I guess, which we do see, you know, of course, in other areas, like pop music and Motown, you know, there's definitely that element but for some of these artists on this timeline specifically we can kind of see how they're able to you know do things their own way if they so choose sometimes sacrificing popularity and success but you know still within still able to be successful in their own right and and certainly historically speaking very successful as far as they're looked upon today so it's, it's you know, just something, another piece to consider as we kind of move forward to see, you know, these artists getting a little bit more of that freedom, you know, to some degree. Obviously, there's a pop music and mainstream side also that's still occurring that, you know, it's another way to go down. And we'll talk about that a little bit more with some of these final artists um, and their sort of relationship with the industry and, you know, maybe sacrificing or also getting that success. So once again, thanks for listening. Um, I think this episode was fairly brief um, in comparison, and so we'll get back to it next week. Um, we're down to, I think, the last two episodes, and then we get to move on to a little bit more of, a, I guess, a looser format post-timeline where you know, we'll see what comes up, but it'll be a little bit more of a focus on uh, current events um, hopefully get some guests in here and, you know, we can rely a little bit more on listener feedback and some of the issues that you all want to talk about as well and focus on. So, you know, that's something I'm looking forward to, but, you know, at the same time, I'm still enjoying going through the last pieces of this timeline as we kind of wrap things up in uh, 1984. All right. Thanks for listening. and I'll see you next time.